Hi, you're listening to a podcast brought to you by the teaching team at New Life in North Lincolnshire. New Life is committed to helping transform people and transform places through the love and power of Jesus Christ. We hope you, in some small way, will be blessed and transformed by this message. Great, good morning to you all. It's good to see you. Thanks to the team for just rushing on and laying everything out. Big round of applause for Ken and his team. Hey, have you ever uh, butt-dialed anyone? As some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you don't. Some of you just think I've said something naughty. I am a teacher, I will explain. Maybe could we just uh, get rid of a little bit of the boom, thank you. So, uh, yeah, you know, butt-dialed. You know what I mean by butt-dialed? So, uh, nowadays, for those of you who are older, we have these phones that they're not attached to any wire they're called mobile phones and uh, you can slip them in your back pocket and what butt dialing is is when you sit down you accidentally dial someone and all the time you're sat down there is someone on the other end listening to you and whoever you're with uh, muffled because of your butt Admittedly, some people's are more muffled than other, but we won't go there. Um, of course, there are other ways to, uh, to do that. You could uh, ring a wrong number, for instance, and talk to people, and uh, you're sharing all your life secrets, but you're not talking to the person who you thought you were talking to. That's just as embarrassing, isn't it? You know, there are, you could send a, anyone sent a text to the wrong person. Come on, admit it, there is more than six of us. Come on, anyone sent a text to the wrong person? Anyone sent a really embarrassing text to the wrong person? And then you've had to send another text to try and get out of it. Yes? You know, if you're on your way to church, you're on your way to church, and uh, with your whole family, doesn't matter how big your family is, but your whole family, and then things go wrong on the journey to church and tempers rise. Tempers rise. Some people know what I'm talking about. Things aren't quite going right. And, and within your family, a little friction occurs. And the friction gets louder and louder and a little more severe, you know. And there's not name calling or swearing, but you know everyone in the car is angry. There's a bit of shouting going on, a bit of, shut up and let me drive. <laughs> I told you we shouldn't have come this morning. We're going. All that kind of stuff. If you're on your way to church and all that happens, who would be the last person on earth you would want to accidentally call so that they hear all that? It's happened. It's happened. I've had like a 15-minute voicemail message of this whole family in the church. I've got their permission to share it this morning. It's all right. I'm not going to name them. On this journey, where everything on this journey was going wrong, not of their own making, of weather and storms and floods and roads being blocked and 
and uh, they were on team and, uh, and they were going to be late and shall we call anyone? No. And the kids are in their back trying to keep out of it but they can't keep out of it and the man's trying to drive through rain and hail and, and all this and he's getting tense and shouting and the wife's doing this. And then there's this moment after 15 minutes where one of the kids says, who's that on the phone? And you hear this silence descend in the car. And I just hear this, someone's dialed. <laughs> but they got to church just to be with us through rain and hail and storm. So important was gathering as church that they made it through despite all the stuff that was going on. And we're in this series called Church. Now, I need to come clean with you. I've preached this series before two years ago, and I called it by its Greek name, Ecclesia, four parts, Ecclesia. And it was in January two years ago. So some of you who heard my talk from last week were having deja vu. You're thinking, I've heard this before. Well, well done, you have. Well done for listening. That's great. And you'll have heard this one before too. And I may do the series in a couple of years' time because so important is the series for us to understand really what church is about. The series is really about this. Uh, Is church today falling foul of a divine trades descriptions act? Are we, as church, being what Jesus expected church to be? That's that's really what we're addressing in this series. What Jesus expected church to look like, is that what church is today? And so last week we looked at the most fundamental thing about church, and it's this phrase that is sometimes misused, sometimes overused, often given a purely spiritual, ethereal context was really, it's more than that. And it was the phrase born again. Can you say born again? So important is that phrase uh, that Jesus tells someone, don't be surprised when I tell you, you must be born again. And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to the podcast from last week. Uh, But in summary, I described it as this, born again isn't purely a spiritual thing that happens to you in a moment, neither is it a label, i.e. you're born again Christian and you're not a born again Christian. It's not a label, but it's something, something like this, that you make a decision Maybe in a moment, but maybe over a process of time, you make a decision to accept a new adopted identity. Shall I say that again? True Jesus followers who can describe themselves as born again, you've made a decision to accept a new adopted identity. I have my lineage, I can trace it back. And I was born naturally into that lineage. 
And even though I have that lineage and it affects me because of things like genetics and DNA and all that, I choose now to accept a new, more powerful identity because God, through Jesus Christ, wants to adopt me into his lineage. Do you accept that or not? If you accept it, then you are born again. And we know something spiritual happens in us because Jesus said you're born again by the Spirit. That can only happen because of the Holy Spirit. But the decision is a conscious, considered one. It doesn't happen accidentally. And of course, there are challenges then for us. Just by hanging around church for 30 years and getting to know all the songs and church lingo and having your best friends in the church doesn't make you a Jesus follower. You don't get born again by accident. Neither does just being able to look back at a moment 30 years ago and say, at five past nine on that day, I got born again, therefore I'm a Jesus follower. Because if you're anything like me, you have lots of considered conscious moments where you choose again to be part of this identity. Yes? So I would dare to say this, Although many of us may have a special moment to hark back to, all of us are in a process of being born again. And there we left it. And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to last week's podcast. Or when I preached it two years ago, I had longer to talk about it. And we'll make sure that those older podcasts are up online as well. So that's where we were last week. Next week, we have quite an exciting subject to do with church, probably the most exhilarating of the talks. It's quite an exciting one. But today, we're talking about an aspect of church that everything else launches from. Okay? Everything else about church launches from the subject that we're talking about today. I wonder if we could just pray for a second. Let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has power to change us. And we pray now, Lord, that you will give us insight and revelation. Maybe on things that we've seen lots of times before. Things we think we understand and comprehend. But let some penny drops, pennies drop in our hearts, in all of us this morning. So, Lord, will you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to obey in your name. Amen. Would you buy a Bible that doesn't have the word church in it? Would you buy a Bible that doesn't have the word church in it? And of course, most time we will answer, uh, no, we wouldn't, because the chances are that that Bible would be heretical. Of course, Bibles have got the word church in it. You can turn the pages, especially in the New Testament, of course. In fact, only in the New Testament. And find the word church 111 times. That's an easy number to remember. 111 times you can find the word church in the New Testament. So if you went to a bookshop and someone sold you a Bible, or they were in the process of selling you a Bible, and as they were selling you it, they said, oh, by the way, this Bible I'm giving you, it still goes from Genesis to Revelation, but it doesn't have the word church in it. You would think they were nuts, right? 
You know, what kind of Bible is this that doesn't have the word church in it? And you'll probably be right to think that. However, Scripture in its original language, in its original form, doesn't have the word church in it. The New Testament, which was written in Greek, doesn't have the word church in it. Now, you're thinking, I know, I know what Russ is doing here. He's playing a trick on us. You're thinking, he's saying it doesn't have the word church in it because it was written in Greek and church is an English word. Uh, you're right, but that's not the trick. I'm even saying this, that there isn't a word in the original version of the Bible, there isn't a word that means what we think church means. That's not even in there in the Bible. What you think church means, what I've grown up thinking church means, and I read it in my Bible, if you were to translate that word backwards and then hunt for it in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's not there. So what's going on here? Well, here are three verses coming on the screen now, just from one chapter in the Bible. Acts chapter 19. Let's have a look at the first one. Acts chapter 19, verse 32. It says this. The gathering was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Do you know what the word gathering is in Greek? It's ecclesia. Ecclesia. Can you say ecclesia? Ecclesia. Acts 19, 32. Let's move on a few verses for the next one. Acts 19, 39. If there is anything else, it must be settled in the assembly. You know what the word assembly is in Greek? It's ecclesia. Ecclesia, okay? Let's move on. A few more verses. Acts 19, 41. After he had said this, he dismissed the gathering. No prizes. But do you know what the word is in the Greek for gathering? Ecclesia. So in that one chapter, this word ecclesia is translated in its proper sense. Ecclesia was a very common word. A very common word. And here it's translated twice gathering and once assembly. You may read it slightly different in your versions, but I'll tell you what you won't read. You won't read the word church. You will read the word gathering or, or assembly or congregation which of course isn't a church word yet that same word ecclesia appears 111 other times in the bible and doesn't appear as assembly or gathering but appears as church so what's going on there well the first thing we notice that is in these three settings in acts 19 the word ecclesia is in a secular context right a, a non-church context, a non-believer context. It's just a gathering of people. And actually, that's what that word means. It means a gathering of citizens called together. A gathering of citizens that have been called together. So if a local council way back in Ephesus, say they, they called their council members together and they all sat on chairs, what you would have there is an ecclesia. A gathering of citizens 
called together. There is something that binds them together. They are all council members. Do you get that? If there was a Corinthian knitting club, all right, I don't think Paul belonged to that, but you never know. He was a tent maker. He could have just wanted to broaden his skills a bit. There's a knitting club in old Corinth there, and the knitting club committee, which meet on a Tuesday afternoon, they called their members together, but only the door was only open to knitting club members. You, you, you've got to show your card at the door, right? And there they were with the balls of wool. What they have there is a gathering called Ecclesia. It's a gathering of citizens called together. There's this common purpose. So this word Ecclesia is quite non-mystical. It just means citizens called out together. Do, you, do we get that? Are we clear about that? Good. So this word Ecclesia means that. Why do we read it three times as showing that, and then 111 other times as the word church. Well, I'm not going to tell you. But last time I talked on this subject, I had 20 minutes longer to talk about it, and I explained all that. And you can listen back to that podcast, or you can Google it yourself. It's to do with a king we had called King James I. And although he was very clever and wanted to put a Bible in everyone's hands called the authorized version, or the King James Version, a lot of people call it, uh, he also wanted a few egotistical things to happen. And one of the things he instructed the translators is this. I'm called the head of the church, this organized religion. I want to be able to slap everyone's hands. Therefore, I don't want to see that word say gathering. I want to see it say the thing that I'm head of, church. You can read more about that. It's a fascinating story. He also changed a few other things too. Anyone know what the head of the early church was called? Jesus' brother, you want to know what he was called? Come and shout it out. You know there's a book in the Bible. James. James. And we, we, we can turn to the book of James in the Bible James, Jesus' brother, except Jesus' brother wasn't called James. He was called Jacobus, right? Or Jacobus. And his letter was originally called Jacobus. It's only called James because King James wanted his name in the Bible, right? <sighs> Odd fella. Anyway, you can look all that up. That's the only reason why when we look through the New Testament and we see the word church, it says church which in Old English simply meant circle, rather than gathering. Now, here's something important that we need to understand from this. That church has to be gathered before it is anything else. Church has to be gathered before it is anything else. When Paul the Apostle and those other early apostles were writing to other believers and other Christians, they were talking to gathered people. What does gathered mean? Well, it, it means this. It means that we are together, right? Together. So church is 
a togetherness. Church is a togetherness. Now, you might think, you're teaching grandma to suck eggs here, Russ. I mean, we know it. Just look around. I mean, we're all here together. This, this is church. But it's a deeper sense of togetherness than we think it is, right? But I do want to labor this point because this is important. Because you can think, right, um, I've been born again. I know I'm part of this bigger thing called church, but I would like to do my faith journey solo, on my own. I've got my own personal Jesus. I've got my own personal relationships. I like the songs you sing that mention the word I, me, and mine a lot. I'm not particularly into the songs that say we, our, and ours. Um, And my faith is my business. And me and Jesus, we're okay. And you with a lot of Christians, you annoy me. And I'm just going to do my faith journey on my own. And have my own little ministry. Can I tell you, that is totally foreign to what Scripture teaches. The most fundamental thing about church is this. That the words, we, our, and ours are far more powerful and fundamental than the word me, mine, and I. When I was born again and accepted this new adopted identity, I became an hour, a we, an hours. That's why when you read the book of Acts, which is really the journey of the early church, we read strange things like they, they shared everything as if it was everyone's. When people came among them, um, their needs were met because no one counted their things their own. They just shared. Isn't that amazing? Why was that? I'll tell you why it was. Because they had this deep-centered understanding that this wasn't just my relationship with Jesus. But I share it with you. You know, I, I understand the sentiment that lots of preachers, including me, have said over the years that, hey, if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have come and he would have died for you. That's true. But you weren't the only person on the planet. And he came and died for the world. There is an ourness, a togetherness to this faith. And it's labored in the Bible. It's countercultural. That's why non believers of the time thought these church folk, these, these ecclesia that gathered because they were citizens of a new identity, the clubs that they gathered in, these small groups they had in houses down back streets, and they marked them with a sign of a cross a sign of a fish. They, um, they thought that these little ecclesias, these gatherings of Jesus citizens, they thought they were weird because so much did they value their togetherness. I wonder if people think you're weird, not just because you go to a building on a Sunday morning and sing Christian songs. 
but because you value your togetherness with other Jesus followers. I don't know whether we're there. I, I, I think we need to get there. Because I think it's a hallmark of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, there are lots of examples of this trying to be taught in the New Testament. And you can, you can dig into what Paul the Apostle writes. Someone shouted out the name Paul earlier. He was a key person. He was the earliest Christian writer that we can read about as to understand what church is about. And he gives this great example of this together, togetherness. And he talks about the church being a body. You've heard that, right? The church is a body. Not only is it a body, but it's like the body of Christ, where Christ is the head and we're the body. That's how he describes it. And then there are at least two places in the Bible where he uses that analogy to show this togetherness. And he picks out ideas, and I'm going to sort of extrapolate a couple of those ideas. Let's say, you know, you go into bed one evening and you get yourself all ready and you stub your toe on the edge of the bed. I do that a lot, right? You stub your toe. There's the toe and it's throbbing and it hurts. There are, at least in my case, a couple of other parts of the body that kick into place. I have a mouth then which goes, right? I mean, almost simultaneously. It relieves some of the pressure. It doesn't relieve the pain. It just relieves the pressure, right? You've got to do it. The mouth is in sympathy with the toe. I don't know how the brain sorts that out, but the head just somehow sorts that out. And then pretty quickly, my hands come into action. And I haven't got magic hands, but they try and soothe what's going on down there, right? A stubbed toe really hurts, right? And, and they immediately shoot down and you're hopping around. And, well, I can't, you know, I can do that. Quite good for 55, right? Good balance. <laughs> so you, you, do all, you do all that and you, you try and fix it. And Do you know there are lots of stubbed toes in church? You could be a stubbed toe this morning. No, seriously, you damaged yourself yesterday, physically or mentally or spiritually. Or emotionally and you're a stubbed toe and if you're trying to do faith alone then no one else will go ah this body's hurting and there'll be no hands to soothe you and so Paul the Apostle he emphasizes he said we're like a body no no one part of the body can say to another part of the body I have no need of you you work in sympathy because Jesus the head has made it this way and you can't have a little finger saying to a left knee oh I'm better than you because I look cleaner or I've got less wrinkles that's not how it works we're all part of the body And, and this was a hallmark of church that when Russ Westfield gets stubbed, someone else goes, ah! And then, and then some hands from across the body come in and they try and soothe it. Powerful picture, isn't it? See, this is a deeper level of understanding. This is not just about being gathered in a weekly habit kind of event, although that's very good. This is about that this gathering 
is a, de- is a picture of a deeper togetherness. And that's how it's explained. You can't have in this body a, a hand that says, I'm, I'm born again, I'm part of the church, but, but it puts a glove on. And it says, but I don't want to be part of you. You know, and the rest of the body is driving to a destination. And you're driving and this gloved hand is sticking out the window saying, I don't want anything to do with you. It's a funny picture, isn't it? It's a funny picture. But the, we can be like that in church. We say, I'm born again. I'm adopted into Jesus' family. This is the place that it seems God has called me to grow, but I don't want to be part of that. I don't like the knees. I don't like the elbows. I particularly don't like that nose over there, always getting in the way. So I'm just happy here. I'll wear my glove and I'll pretend I'm not part of the body while still wanting to be Christ's. And I would say the teaching says that's dangerous territory because you'll end up being nobodies. So this is a shift from the personal experience of born-againness into togetherness. Can you see that shift and how powerful it is? Here's the second point. And I touched on it last week, but I didn't have much time to open it. That this gathered, this word ecclesia, this gatheredness means, yes, a deeper sense of togetherness. But it does mean that word that Sarah mentioned at the beginning. It means family. Family. And, and I know that some of you think this because I've, I've said it in the past that, look, when you talk about church as family, that's all a bit soppy for me. It's all a bit soppy. I would rather you talk about church as militant. Onward, Christian soldiers marching on. I would rather you talk about church as an army, as a Jesus battalion. Oh, as taking the kingdom by force. Get down, devil. We're tough. Yeah, we're the beefy Christians. And I get all that, and you can see it in the Bible. The church is militant. It doesn't lay down and say, hey, secular world, tickle my tummy. (laughs) And, And we'll do what you want. It says, no, we follow Christ first. First. And if that puts us out of step with the world and with society, then tough, we follow Christ. The church is tough and militant, and it is an army. But do you know what it allows, why it's allowed to be that? Because first and foremost, it is this countercultural family. Now, you may say to me, but Russ, I can find where it talks about being an army in the New Testament, but I can't find where it teaches being a family. And you would be right. I would struggle. Sending you to a chapter in the Bible where it talks about church being family. But I don't have to send you to a chapter in the Bible. Because so embedded was the sense of family that it just seeps through the whole thing. 
Because what did they call each other that no one else in that day called each other? They would, Russ would go up to Stevius. Okay. Because that would, that's the Greek version of your name. I've just made that up, but it sounds great. Hello, Stevius, commander. Russius, I'm Russius, commander of, the, commander of the armies of the north. Welcome, Stevius, my brother. Got to call me your brother. Okay, right, brother. Great. Thank you. <laughs> sister in Christ. Thank you, brother. Thanks, brother, she said. Sister Anne. Brother Ken. I mean, it's just embedded. No, go seriously, read the Bible. It's all brother and sister. Brother and sister. I write this to my brothers and sisters in Christ from your brother Paul. I mean, some of the people he never met. They're just Jesus followers in Ecclesia, in this incredible deep sense of togetherness. And they're brothers and sisters in this new, chosen, adopted identity. So can I, can I point to a chapter where it teaches that church is family? No, but I can, I can point to a hundred chapters where it shows that church's family. Can you see that? And it's not soppy, it's powerful. You could hop on a plane today and fly to the other side of the world and you bump into someone who's following Jesus and you go, it's good to see you, bro. It's good to see you, bro, too. How are you doing? I had a bad day yesterday. Shall we just pray? Yeah, let's pray to dad. Let's pray to dad. Family. It's not soppy. It's actually its strength. It's its strength. Despite the fallouts that families have, eh? Anyone in a family that has fallouts? I know a family that has fallouts on the way to church. <laughs> I deleted the voicemail, by the way. It's okay. Um, yeah, so families have fallouts. And you can read about some of the fallouts in the New Testament. There were people even in the, the early church family who fell out with each other. Uh, and they had little trial separations. And they came back to each other. You, you, you can see that. And families have fallouts. You have arguments. You, you have times around the, the dinner table where it's all not sweet and nice and, and all those kind of things happen. Yet, despite it, the family bond is like an incredible gravity that pulls this back together again. And there's a verse in the Bible in Galatians 3, and I think we have this on the screen. That for me, if, if church in its togetherness and if church in its familiness grasps this, it can change the way we live and our worldview. Do you want to read it with me? This is Paul the Apostle writing to a church in Galatia. Here we go. You are all children of God through Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Why is that powerful? Well, one, it's not an exhaustive list. I think Paul could have carried on listing things, right? Yes? And he's not pointing out levels of sin and righteousness and clean living. He's not saying it doesn't matter whether you're a clean living Greek or whether you're a dirty Jew or whether you're a clean living Jew and a dirty Greek. He's not saying that. He's not saying only... uh, only people who've conquered most of the sin in their lives who are Greek, and then most of the people who've conquered sin in their lives who are Jews, then they're one. Uh, and if you're a, a slave who is living a good life, uh, and your, your uh, free friend who is not in slavery is living a good life, then you're one. He's not talking about levels of sin here. He's talking about the fact that wherever you are in your life, whatever journey you're on in your life, wherever you've been born geographically, whatever genetic line you can trace, whatever status you have in life, whatever makeup you have in life biologically, wherever you're at, if you have passed through that step of saying, Jesus I don't feel like I'm living like you want me to live yet, but I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I want to follow you, help me, and you take that step and accept your new identity. And then just like all of us, we spend a lifetime learning what that means, right? If you do that, then it's as if there is no Greek, nor Jew, nor male, nor female. Now, talk about countercultural. This went against everything that was going on in the day and, and, and goes against almost everything that's going on now. And church, we have some things to learn about that. We have some things to learn about that. We, we can still have a tendency to look at people who are different than ourselves and make a difference almost in a level of cleanliness. They've not had yet 20 years of clean living. Look how they're living. I'm not one with them. And Jesus and the early church would say, oh, you are. Get used to it. But they've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, and they're still gay. And Jesus would say, and you still sin every day too. We have to get used to this oneness. This statement is not a level of sin. It's a fact. Jesus, in my simplicity, I accept my new identity in you. Now I want to spend a lifetime understanding what that means. Make me clean. I accept your rule in my life. Whatever it takes, fast or slow, I accept it. And I look around and I see this global family that I'm now a part of. That when I feel stubbed, someone will go, ah, 
and another person will try and soothe me. And they are not just anyone, they are my brothers and sisters. How powerful is this organization? If only Jesus, if only Jesus left us something to show us how important all this was, right? I mean, it's like it's written down in a book, you know, a paper book. I've got my digital Bible here, but I've got my paper one down there. It's like it's all written down there in a book, and it seems all a bit distant for us to grasp this togetherness, because we're so used in our Western 21st century lifestyle to to separate this Christianity thing from our normal life. And, and you may never think about church and togetherness and, and the familiness of church until you walk in a door on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock or, or on a Wednesday night for your small group. And then all the rest of the week, it doesn't matter. But for the early church, it was embedded in their life. I belong to a new lineage and I have brothers and sisters who without them, I am weak. They are my strength. They are the mouthpieces of God to me. They are the, they are the tender, caring, nursing people to me. They are the ones who can look at me and go, uh -uh, that's out of order, my friend. They are the correctors to me. They are the ones that God uses to work his gifts of the Spirit through. that interesting? My brothers and sisters. And yet we read it in a book and it has difficulty getting embedded in our life. If only Jesus had left us something to remind us of this togetherness. And the answer is, he did. And I hope if you're a follower of Jesus, that you engage in it regularly. If you're in a small group and you've not engaged in this recently, then make sure you do. Do you know what he left us? Ron, come and join me here. That's yours, Ron. Jay, come and join me. That's yours, Jay. Just move that out the way there. Can someone maybe move this out the way, a couple of people? It's very heavy. <laughs> and Ken's very strong. I'm going to read from Corinthians. Do you, know, uh, do you know who Corinthians was written to? It was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a certain group of people in Corinth, uh, the Ecclesia. They didn't meet like we did. They, they couldn't for many different reasons, but they met in different homes, some large homes, some small homes, and they would pass his letters from one home to the other home. It's great, isn't it? It's like small group notes. They would just pass, pass his letters from one home to the other home. And he was talking to believers. Who was he talking to? Believers. 
See, this is important we understand because part of what is said in this letter, the church, and certainly evangelical type churches like us have misconstrued over the years. We've thought something like this. If you're a believer in Christ, you can engage in this. If you're not a believer in Christ, then you can't engage in this. And that's wrong. And it's wrong because of this. If you're not a believer in Christ, then this is just bread and juice. If you are a believer in Christ and you're living like family and togetherness, this is a blessing. If you're a follower of Christ and you have something against your brother or sister, then you can eat or drink this unworthily. See, he's talking to the church. He's talking to family. This is what's written. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, Brother Ron. My body is broken for you, said Jesus, so that you needn't be broken. Stay together. Stay together. And they ate it. Family. It's an odd thing to do, but Jesus left us this. do this in remembrance of me the head of us the body in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this is a cup of a new covenant do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again So then, whoever in the church, whoever in the family, whoever in this deeper aspect of togetherness drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner may be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Why don't you close your eyes?
We're all going to share in communion shortly. I've asked the stewards to get ready and stand around the place in, in stations. And for those of us who are able, we're going to make our way to those stations and eat the bread and drink the juice. If you're not able to leave your seat for whatever reason, you just pop your hand in the air and we'll make sure you're served. If you're a visitor here, if you know you're not a follower of Jesus, we don't want to single you out. You can either eat and drink this or you can decide not to. It, it doesn't matter. It's just bread and juice. For those of us who are family of Jesus Christ, family together, we're given this injunction. Make things right. Make things right. If you're a hand and you've fallen out with the elbow, make things right. First of all, make things right in your heart before God. Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to be part of a body that's broken. Forgive me for sinning against someone else. Forgive me for being having vengeance in my heart or resentment or anger. Forgive me, Lord. And then if it's possible this morning, go and make it right. Go and say something. Maybe a person isn't here this morning and the person who you need to do that with, will you just determine in your heart that you're going to do that as soon as possible? Because I would love us to go forward as a church before we look at being strong and militant and powerful and exuberant, getting this wonderful foundation togetherness and family I believe in this meal that Jesus left us is not just a symbol of togetherness not just a memory of what Jesus accomplished for us but also a point of healing a point of healing if you're stubbed this morning and even as you line up to take of the bread and of the juice, have a prayer in your heart. Lord, make me whole. Lord, fix me. Thanks for listening to this message from New Life in North Lincolnshire. To find out more, do visit us online at newlifechurch.uk. Or why not pay us a visit? We'd love to see you.